Hi, everybody. My name is Tony and Marcolini. Welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. Uh, today, I'm super excited uh, because I have with me a national best-selling author, Carrie Mayer. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. <laughs> I'm so excited that you're here. So I had never read anything that you had written until I read The Paris Bookseller. So, uh, and by the time I was, I'd say, 20 pages into the book, you had absolutely hooked me. Uh, and by the end, I was madly in love with your story, with your book. And then I went out and I bought, I bought your other two books. Like you, that book led me to, I wanted to trying to read everything you'd written. Uh, but first I wanted, I want to delve into the Paris bookseller because it is such an interesting story. Um, and you tell the story of Sylvia Beach, right? An American uh, from my, I want to say my state, right? She was from, I think Princeton, New Jersey. She, she was born in Maryland, but she mostly grew up in New Jersey. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Okay. And then she winds up in Paris uh, and opens like an American bookstore there. Yes. Uh, how did you learn of this story even? Because it's historical fiction. And I think you're becoming, after having read you, you and Kate Quinn, you're, you're, I, I refer to you now, I think, as the queens of historical fiction. Oh, well, that's uh, a high praise for me, I must say. I mean, Kate is definitely the high queen for sure. Um, <laughs> and she's, she's a friend of mine. She's absolutely terrific. There is no more generous and um, nice writer out there today. Well, you two are definitely from from me, you know, at the at the tippy top uh, when it comes to the genre, uh, because it takes I think it takes a lot of balance, right, to get it right. Like to have your author walk, I mean, your reader walk away feeling uh, like they truly got to know a person who actually lived. Like you, because you're kind of you're telling a true story and obviously fictionalizing, you know, the 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 parts around it. But uh, I mean. That, that's that's an interesting process to stay true, I think, to that, which I want to get into. Uh, but first, I want to find out, how did you learn of Sylvia's story? Well, so this is an interesting story. I've actually been carrying her story around in me my entire adult life. Um, when I was an undergraduate in college, I was a starry-eyed English major, some, dreaming of someday writing my own novel. And, you know, my favorite period was the 1920s. You know, how can you not love, you know, flapper dresses and, you know, women finally sort of coming into their own and like there's, you know, prohibition and, you know, all of this like amazing um, cultural stuff happening in the 1920s. Jazz, jazz age, sure. Jazz age, exactly. And I was especially interested in the expat writers of the 1920s. So, you know, these famous American writers like Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound and Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, who either lived in Paris or, or went there for extended um, periods of time throughout the decade of the 1920s. So anyway, there I am, you know, undergraduate English major Carrie, um, you know, and I, you know, those wonderful bargain book bins in front of college um, bookstores. So one weekend I was trolling around those, those book bins and I pull out a book called Shakespeare and Company. I read the back and basically it says Paris in the twenties. And I thought sold. 
Um, so, you know, I probably bought it for 75 cents and I br brought it home and I read it and it turned out to have been Sylvia Beach's own memoir of her time in Paris running Shakespeare and Company um, in the 20s, but also the 1930s. And I was just entranced by her story. I mean, here was this American, single American woman who opened a, like a world famous bookstore um, and all the famous writers that were my heroes were her friends. And I just thought, wow, you know, this is an amazing story. But, you know, I was also 20 years old. And so I filed it away under good to know. And I, I you know, fast forward, <clears throat> like, you know, a quarter of a century. And um, I've written two other historical novels, you know, one about Kathleen Kennedy and then about Grace Kelly. And I'm sort of thinking about what I want to write about for a third novel. And I really quickly home in on Sylvia Beach. And I'm sort of, you know, given that I, I've known her story for so long, um, and, and one of my favorite historical novels um, of other people's is The Paris Wife by Paula McLean. The fact that it, it didn't occur to me, it's sort of amazing that it didn't occur to me earlier to write Sylvia's story, but I'm, I'm actually really glad it didn't because I think that if my first try at historical fiction had been to put words in the mouth of people like James Joyce and Ernest Hemingway, I would have quit. Um, Sure. I simply say I had Daunting. to practice. I had to practice first with John F. Kennedy, <laughs> um, and that whole the whole Kennedy family, and then with you know with Grace Kelly, I had to obviously um, put words in her mouth and you know Alfred Hitchcock and stuff. So when it came to writing the Paris bookseller, I had kind of gotten over that hump. Now, I mean, I, I just a quick question I have to ask. Um, how are you you selecting? I mean, and I think it's great that you you hone in on strong women in history. Um, but is this something where uh, it's a it's going to be a pattern for you? Are you going to continue telling stories of strong women? You think? I think I will always tell stories of strong women. Um, although you know, my next novel, which is going to be coming out in. Um, not quite sure, maybe early September of 2023, is a little bit of a departure. I know we're really here to talk about Paris Bookseller, but that's actually, it is absolutely the story of strong women, but not one woman. Um, you know, so Kennedy Debutante, Girl in White Gloves, and Paris Bookseller are all really based on the life of one real-life woman. Um, the My fourth novel, All You Have to Do is Call, is actually loosely based on a group of women, and all the characters are fictional. So there's no real life woman that anchors that book. So, um, but you know, it's still historical fiction and it's um, still about strong women. So I think that that is my lane. <laughs> <laughs> I, I quite agree. You do it well. Thank you. Um, did you actually go to Paris to Shakespeare and Company? I did. You know, I went. It, again, it, undergraduate English major me, I went to Paris as um, I, I did actually a junior year abroad in London. And as you know, at the time I, I took the channel, which was at that time, the Eurostar, you know, brand new um, with my mom. We spent like a lovely cold weekend in Paris. Um, and I, I remember going to the to Shakespeare and Company then. Um, but I did go again when I got the green light to write this novel in the summer of 2019 before the world shut down. And I have a great story about that. I, um, I was, I really wanted to stay in this neighborhood, um, you know, in the Latin Quarter where all of these writers lived, where Sylvia lived and where Sylvia's original store was. Um, but, you know, it's a really 
um, popular neighborhood in Paris. And I was like on, and I knew it was a really good friend of mine from London who was going to come and spend some time with me there. So I sort of knew I needed a two bedroom. I was looking on Airbnb. I started despairing that I was going to find anything. And through the magical algorithm, you know, that they show you things that, that, you know, places they think you should look at. One of them was called James Joyce flat. And I thought, no, that just can't be right. But I, lo and behold, I open it. And like the first picture is of a plaque, you know, those plaques they have all over Paris about, you know, some famous person lived here. So it says, you know, James Joyce lived here in the summer of 1921. And so I knew, and in addition, it was actually the flat owned by a, a French poet named Valerie Larbeau, who was a very good friend of Sylvia's. And he lent it to the Joyce family in the summer of 1921 when he went off to the seaside for the summer. Anyway, so I wound up messaging with the owner of the flat because the flat was out of my price range. I was like, I can't, I can't stay there, but could I come see it? Anyway, we, we, we go back and forth and it turns out no one knows exactly which flat it was. They just know this is, this is the, the building that it was in. Um, and he wound up lowering his price for me and I stayed um, uh. in this flat. And it was magical. I mean, it was just, it could not have been a better experience. So I really got to stay, um, you know, very close to, if not in the, the apartment where, where, where Joyce and his family lived. And I got to walk the, you know, the routes that he would have walked to get to the, to Sylvia's store. Um, and, and even better, I wake up my first morning in Paris. I'm like, you know, groggy from jet lag. And I walk up the street and there's another one of those plaques, like one block up. And it says, this was where Ernest Hemingway's first apartment was in Paris. So I was really in it. I really got to be in it. So, and, and that, you know, listen, I could have written the book without that experience, but having had that experience absolutely influenced the writing of the book. I really, you know, I really got to, I feel like make Paris a character in the novel. Oh, and you did. I absolutely think you captured that, right? You, you, if you, for anyone who hasn't read the book, again, I highly recommend it. Uh, it just it's it's a fast read um in in that you know once you're sucked into the story it's just like hold on right you just go you just can't you almost can't put it down i mean um but i felt as if i was you know in, right there with you i mean i think what you're telling me probably your experience led to your ability to capture the details that you do uh to, to, for that experience i think uh, that's right yeah yeah, and I think Sylvia, I you know the voice you capture for Sylvia, uh, you know, in telling her story seems just you know uh, perfect. I, I, I think you, I think you truly did the woman justice, right? Because it's it was it had to be scary, right, to do it, but at the same time exciting to leave behind all she had ever known uh, to undertake this, you know, this journey uh, really on her own uh, i mean she she you know winds up with somebody uh who helps a little bit but uh you know really at the end of the day this this falls to be on her shoulders to for this undertaking uh and uh, she kind of has very little help and just her passion right her passion for books uh kind of carries her through and I, and I really loved that for every reader in the world right it, her, it's it's contagious her passion for books. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, at some point, and I I reviewed her memoir, of course, when I came to write this book. Um, uh, you know, among many other books that I checked out, but 
Um, one of the things that she says of herself in her memoir is that she she felt that she was an adventurous. And I really, I loved that. And that was sort of the spirit I wanted to capture. She, you know, her own voice and her own memoir is really light. And she really seems to want to embrace the sort of positive of her life and um, the excitement. And she really wants to capture that. And she's got a great sense of humor too. Um, and in fact, yeah, that, I mean, really humor is really one of the bases of her, her original friendship with James Joyce. I mean, they, um, something I didn't really feel equipped to try and capture in my novel, because I am not multilingual myself, but she and Joyce were, were both multilingual. And so they would play these like multilingual word games in the store. Um, you know, and so I just thought that that was so charming. You know, we we think of we think of these famous writers as like famous writers, capital F, capital W, right? But really, they were just people, <laughs> um, and they they did very human things. Um, one of the games that they really did play that I that I did put in the novel was that they used to actually um, stand in the in the entryway of Shakespeare and Company or go to a cafe and play spot Leopold Bloom or spot Stephen Dedalus. Um, and I loved that too. And I thought, well, that I can add to the book um, and sort of show their sense of play together. And did you know beforehand that uh, that that she had published Ulysses? Yes. Well, I, I knew that, you know, this is funny. I knew it because I had read her memoir when I was 20 years old, right? But I'd sort of forgotten that part of her story, honestly, <laughs> until I started researching her again. Um, I, I, and that just, but it said that says much more about me than it does about her. I mean, because when I read it as a young person, what really stood out to me was the sort of romance of her owning the bookstore. Um, and uh, so it was really amazing to, to rediscover her publication of Ulysses and what an amazing adventure that really was. I mean, she really, I mean, she says in her memoir, I don't recommend anybody embark on publishing like I did, which is like knowing absolutely nothing about how it works, right? But, you know, thank God she didn't know anything. And thank God she did do it because I don't think anyone else would have taken it on. Um, you know, she really went into it blind and with an enormous uh, love for Joyce and his writing and respect for him and belief in his novel. And that's really, you know, it was those squishy emotions that really ca carried her through the process. I think if she had been thinking about it as a cold-hearted businesswoman, she never would have done it. Sure. I mean, there's, and there's this, I, I want to say like awestruck moment, right? When she first gets to meet him, uh, right? Because that that's, kind of a thing before they meet, right? She's wondering if she's going to get to meet him, right, in your book. And then she ultimately does get to meet him. And I think it's as much a surprise to her uh, as anyone else, like, that they become friends. Right. You can capture it any other way. I mean, they ultimately become, you know, form a friendship. And historically speaking, when uh, Ulysses is otherwise considered, uh, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, what is part of me? Obscene. Obscene, yeah. I think that is at the time they considered it obscene, so nobody really wants to touch it. Um, she champions that, doesn't she? I mean, she, she, she says, you know, no, this can't be that this doesn't get done, and that's ultimately why she, you know, the bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, winds up 
publishing his book. And I guess that's the one of the pieces of a big piece of the novel, but it's only one little piece of the novel, I think, in its totality uh, of the story you tell. Uh, but she, she undertakes this, uh, this woman who on her own has moved to another country, has opened up a bookstore, and now she's publishing James Joyce for a book that the rest of the world deems too obscene to get involved with. Uh, I mean, that's if that's not in your face, I'm not sure what, what else is. Yeah. You know, something I also like to highlight that I really did not understand until I really started researching this novel is that, you know, she was part of this amazing, um, I'm going to say group, but it was really like a loose group of women um, publishers uh, during this time. I mean, she picks up the baton of publishing Ulysses when two American women in New York have to set it down. You know, so the, the trial that finds Ulysses obscene in 1921 um, is actually the trial of Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, who were the editors of this avant-garde literary journal called The Little Review. And they had been serializing Ulysses since 1918, and um, with increasing scrutiny from the New York Society of, for the Suppression of Vice, the Vice Squad. I just love saying that every time it never gets old. The, the Vice Squad. So, you know, so, and finally the Vice Squad arrests Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap for publishing obscenity. So it's really Margaret and Jane who stand trial for publishing obscene material, and they are the ones who are found guilty. The book itself is sort of like deemed obscene by extension of their publishing obscenity. Does that, if that makes any sense? Anyway, right. so they 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 had been determined to publish the whole, not to serialize the whole novel, but they are forced to stop. And that is when, when news of that finally reaches Paris, that is when Celia offers to publish it. And, you know, the other, uh, you know, the other, uh, there are two other important women in this story. One is um, the woman in um, London who has also been serializing Ulysses named Harriet Weaver, who never has to stand trial. But as soon as this trial happens in New York, all the publishers in London also withdraw their offers. To publish, um, to publish Ulysses in book form. And so Harriet also by extension, she had been serializing it for the British audience in a, in a journal called The Egoist. And she has to stop serializing it as well. Um, and, um, and then there is Sylvia's romantic and business partner in France, Adrienne Monnier, who owns the French language bookstore and lending library across the street from Shakespeare and Company. Um, and Adrienne has long published, not books, but um, sort of short pieces and jur like journal style um, pieces um, of the, the French bohemian writers and intellectuals um, uh, as well. So Adrienne is in many ways like a partner and a mentor and an um, inspiration to Sylvia. So this this amazing group of women you know, who are determined to bring this novel to the world. It's really, it's an amazing and inspiring story. It certainly is. And I think I th we should probably give a shout out to Adrienne uh, character-wise in the book, right? She ultimately, uh, because they, they wind up in a romance, I, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that winds up being the reason that she ultimately tries to stay in Paris 
I mean, but for, for Adrian, do you think Sylvia would have stayed? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think, you know, I think that her ties to Paris were many and strong. You know, you're talking about in the 30s when everyone else is going home, right? You're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I my guess is that she would have stayed. I mean, something that I don't really wind up getting into too much in the novel because I do end it in 1937 is that her her romance with Adrienne winds is sort of on the rocks at that point a little bit. Um so she actually in some romantically speaking, she she had every reason to leave. Um but uh but they're really, I think what's really important to understand about Adrienne and Sylvia, and I really had to wrap my head around, is that the foundation of their romance is really friendship. You know, it starts as a friendship and kind of a sisterhood in books. And they they share every aspect of their lives. You know, they not they don't they don't just have a romantic relationship, you know, they they're two stores. Um, on the Rue de l'Odéon in Paris are really regarded by the, their clientele as almost like as one store, right? Adrienne's store, La Maison des Amis de Livre, the house of the friends of books, is, the, is a French language bookstore and lending library, just like Shakespeare and Company is a is an English language bookstore and lending library. And that, that hybrid model of the lending library and the bookstore, I think is important for people to understand because you know, at this time, books were really expensive and writers were poor, so they could not really buy a lot of books. And so they, so Adrienne kind of pioneered this model that Sylvia also adopted of, um, for a very modest annual subscription, um, people could check out as many books as they wanted from, from the library portion of the shop. Um, and uh, so they were really kind of like sister stores on the street. Um, Joyce called it Stratford on Odeon, <laughs> and and Sylvia and 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 Adrienne called it Odeonia, um, like a sort of mythical, you know, street of books. Yeah, I mean it's it's really kind of cool, right? Because at the time they you have know, like Fitzgerald is coming by, he's getting his mail there, uh, right? Yeah. I mean it it winds up being all uh, many authors who who go on to be what we consider some of the best uh, authors of our of our time um, start off hanging out there, absorbing a little bit of life in Sylvia's in Sylvia's shop, yeah. right? Checking out books there. And uh, and and I think that to me was just as interesting as Sylvia's story. The fact that she's right in the thick of things, right? These are these amazing authors, these timeless authors are coming in and out and they're joking and they're having friend friendships together. And uh, I, I could see that as having been quite daunting um, to have to put, as you say, words in the mouth of, you know, Fitzgerald or the, or Joyce um, and had, and I guess I was wondering as I was reading it, right? Because I, I do think that's a daunting task. But at the same time, how do you like do service, you know, do do justice rather to, to that obligation? Because if I was undertaking it, I would have felt obligated to get it right, right? Yeah. To want to capture them as best or as true to them as I possibly can. Because there's arguably a generation of readers 
who don't know that much about them, who maybe just like historical fiction and are not really into the classics and who, who are going to pick up your book. And maybe that's the first experience they ever learn of Joyce. Or I, I'd argue, go out and actually buy or check out of the library, Ulysses, uh, based upon reading your book. Yeah. Um, so, so you may have been the portal into that world for some people. And I guess I was wondering, you know, how did you get it right? Because, I mean, I really do feel like you got it right. I mean, I was familiar with all those authors in advance and read all those authors in advance. And, and, I, and I felt their essence, their true essence there. And, and I guess I just wanted to ask that question. How did, you, how did you do it? How did you get that right? Well, thank you. Um, I'm glad it felt right to you. Um, you know, so there, there's sort of a few layers of answer to this question. One is, and and again, this is something I this is sort of a tension and a truth I had to embrace from the for my my first time writing historical fiction, right? Which is, um, you know, when I was first fretting about putting words in the mouth of John F. Kennedy and his whole family, right? Um, I I had two writer friends of mine from very different pieces of my writing life say almost the exact same thing to me within a space of two weeks. They were like, but Carrie isn't this your book? And I found that very liberating. So, you know, this is really my interpretation of James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, you know, all the, all, all the famous writers, right? Sylvia herself, right? If you were to write this novel, they would seem a bit different, but no less true, I think, to, to, to readers. Um, so, so there's that. Um, so I think that that's, that's an important kind of like an emotional, intellectual piece for writers of historical fiction. We just have to embrace that tension, right? It's, it's not the James Joyce. It is not the Sylvia Beach. It is my interpretation of those people. So that said, you, I do want to kind of like, quote, get them right, right? So uh, to that end, I just try and do as much reading as I possibly can. In in Sylvia's case, it was easy. You know, I reviewed her memoir, um, you know, and I read, you know, some various other things about her. Um, there's a few volumes of her letters. Um, and, and actually, there's a volume of her letters back and forth with Joyce. So that was very helpful to, to look at. Um, you know, and like I looked at... Um, you know, other primary source material, other secondary source material. Um, there, you know, there are many books about this time period that are super, I mean, listen, I could have been, I could have researched this book till the day I died and never written a word. So I did have to be pretty strict with myself about what I decided to read. But so just a few highlights. Um, you know, there's one book um, called, it's a recent book actually about the publication of Ulysses called The Most Dangerous Book by Kevin Birmingham. And that proved to be really useful to me in understanding the ways in which the different people, people involved in the publication and the trials of Ulysses thought about the book, um, which also gave me clues about their personalities, right? Like if they, if they viewed the book a particular way that said something to me about them as people. You know, that just that um, what we were talking about earlier about the fact that Joyce and Sylvia played games in Shakespeare and Company, you know, that's a small detail, but 
in my imagination that I, I extrapolate that out to many things about them, right? You know, the, the, the way that they are in the world, the way that they, um, playfulness. Yeah. The, the way they interact with each other and with other people. Um, so, you know, things like that. It's a little bit like putting together the pieces of a puzzle. And, you know, when I run across a really juicy detail, I, you know, I write it down, I take notes or, and really once I've encountered it and written it down, if it's really good and juicy, I don't ever forget it. <laughs> um, I just, it just, it, I, I hang on to it in my mind. Another, you know, so actually thinking about the Kennedys again, like a detail like that about that I remember running across about Rose Kennedy was there was this letter that she wrote to all of her children where you know, this is Rose Kennedy, right? Like one of the most wealthy women, you know, ever um, at that time. And she's like talking about how expensive the shoes are at Bergdorf Goodman. <laughs> and, you know, that again said so much to me. It's really those little details that reveal a, a character to me in the research. Well, I guess that would leads segues pretty easily for me into your creative process, right? Because you in particular, I mean, I think the novelist, you know, has a, a, a harder job than most other writers, right? The screenwriter is doing a very collaborative uh, type of work. They're not going to be the only hand in creating that process. Uh, they're interacting with uh, certainly with other people. And by the time you get the movie out, all these people have had their hand in, in, in making that uh, come out the way it should. But the novelist has that lonely task of sitting behind the computer uh, and creating this world that, you know, millions of people are going to spend some time with at some point. Um, so, I mean, while you can have many conversations, I think, uh, and before you actually sit behind that computer, uh, what, what does your creative process look like? I mean, how, how do you create? I mean, are you just, after I read or I do all my research, it's just there for me. It's in the back of my head. I sit down, I write. Um, are you the, you know, well, I'm in the shower and I'm kind of marinating thoughts and putting it together. Uh, you know, what is your process? Like I, I spoke to Matthew Dix, um, who's a, I think a great author as well. Um, he, he said to me, I can't write in advance, I can't even outline or think about what I want or want to write in advance. Like I literally have to sit down at the computer and let the characters talk to me, right? They talk to me and they tell me, and I just go on telling the story. And he tells this really interesting story about how his wife called him at one point to the end of the book. And he's like, I can't talk. You know, he's about to, you know, he's, he's, he's walking up the stairs. I think I'm about to get to the end of the novel. He goes, Oh, what are you going to have? What, what's it going to do? And she's like, I don't know. I have to get back to the computer to find out. Uh, right. So, so I think there's an element of if people create in all different ways, he's, he yeah. can't create unless the, he's, he's sitting there and the, and the, and the characters are talking to him. How do you create? Yeah. So he's a, a classic pantser, you know, this, this, these, this, this, like, are you a pantser? Like, do you write by the seat of your pants or are you a plotter? Like you plot things out ahead of time. You know, before I wrote historical fiction, I was a devoted pantser. Um, uh, and I, you know, I actually have five unpublished novels in my attic before the Kennedy debutante. So, um, which is much more common than you might realize. Um, but I, I don't regret a single word. They all taught me a lot. So, but historical fiction really required me to become a plotter. But let me, let me explain. So my 
process for historical fiction is to do a lot of reading first. And I take notes. And I usually wind up with this big Microsoft Word file that I've organized kind of chronologically by, you know, and I highlight events, I jot down some ideas. And there's usually, I hit this sort of tipping point of research where I start, scenes start creating themselves in my, my imagination, right? And that's sort of my cue to put the research aside, at least for the time being, and start writing the book. Now, and, and then that document of notes sort of serves almost like an outline. It's in some ways, it's like a menu of events that I, you know, I, there's some events I know I'm going to cover. Um, you know, when I was writing about Grace Kelly, right? Like I knew I was going to cover Rear Window and I yeah. knew I was going to, you know, her, her wedding, right? Um, there were a couple of key dates that I knew and I, you know, but, and then what, what went between there was more discretion and imagination, right? So, the, and the same thing was true um, of Paris Bookseller. So, but but no matter how well I know the events and no matter how much research I've done, I do find that the first draft that comes out of me is a lot like what you were describing. Was it David, you said? Um, oh, Matthew Dix. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Matthew, Matthew Dix. Um is a lot like that. Like my first draft is still a process of getting to know the story, the, the sort of story underneath the story, the emotional truth of the characters. I have some ideas of that going in, but it's really the process of writing the book that sort of really shows me what the book is truly about. And sometimes it takes more than one draft. Um, so I'm 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 a I'm a devoted revision re, revisionist. I I revise books many 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 times before um people before readers like you see them. I have an important part of my process are my trusted beta readers. I've got um, a posse of fantastic um, writers and readers who read my early drafts and are straight with me about what's working and what's not working. So I can kind of use that feedback to go back into the book and um and make it better and then it, you know you know later in the process once I have a draft that I feel is functioning that's when my agent my editor start weighing in and then I usually have another few at bats at that point yeah I'm, I'm fascinated. a lot of comfort that comes from having you know 100,000 words or 90,000 words written right? I feel so much better once the draft is done, even if I wind up cutting half the draft. There's just a lot of safety in those words. Sure. And, and I think, you know, it, it's not an easy task, right? To put something together that somebody else is going to be able to enjoy uh, and, and sit and spend some time with, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you are entertaining people. And, you know, it's not a, not an easier way to put that. People buy the book because they have to get solace in that or peace in that. They're entertained by that. And it's not easy, you know, easy I don't think, to entertain the masses, right? <laughs> so that in and of itself, I like I said, I think is kind of daunting. Uh, you, in particular, I think the historical fiction writers uh, have an even harder journey. Because while while certain authors, as you call them, pantsers, right, can write by the seat of their pants, these people exist only in their head. Um, the, the people you you select are real people, and I think there's something to that. Like 
grabbing the essence of a person and being able to put that on the paper. Um, I mean, I was fascinated. I have to admit, uh, almost embarrassingly so, I was unfamiliar with Shakespeare and Company. And I'm somebody who has been a kind of an obsessive reader since I was young. I mean, I didn't want to go play in the playground when I was in grammar school. I, I wanted to go to the library and finish reading like my latest Nancy Drew novel. You know, I mean, I, I, mean, I definitely have been a reader from when I was young. I, I read maybe two books a week. I mean, I'm really in a kind of an obsessive reader. Uh, and I had never heard of Shakespeare and Company. Um, so you were, I, I used the word earlier, my portal into certainly Sylvia's world. I'd never heard of her. I'd never heard of the bookstore, uh, which I became somewhat obsessed with afterwards. Yeah. You know? <laughs> what, what, what was that like uh, to be there? I mean, because it, while it still exists now, I should say, for anybody who hasn't read yet, uh, it's not owned by the Sylvia Beach family oh. anymore. She ultimately closes it down during World War II uh, when a Nazi soldier comes in. Uh, and what? two questions I guess I have. You know, one, what was it like? I mean, do you feel the history when yes. you're in the store? Yeah, the current store. The current store is is its own phenomenal magical place I have to say so just in brief as you said Sylvia had to close her store during World War II she never reopens it in 1951 although she stays in Paris for the rest of her life um in 1951 another enterprising young American named George Whitman um opens a bookstore um, in the, loca the location of the current Shakespeare and Company, which, by the way, is an amazing location. It's like just across the Seine from Notre Dame Cathedral <laughs> in the left bank. It's like really an amazing place. So he opens it in 1951 under the name Le Mistral. And Sylvia is a regular there. You know, she she goes and I, I have to imagine that the two of them talk about book selling and, you know, he learns all about, I'm sure he knew already about her store, um, but I'm, I have to imagine she told him all the stories. Um, and so in 1964, he rechristens the store Shakespeare and Company. Um, so at this point, Sylvia has passed and um, 1964 was the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. So sort of a celebration, I think, of the original Shakespeare and Company Paris and also Shakespeare himself. Now, if you go into, and, and, and this Shakespeare and Company has been open in that same location since 1951. It has a long and storied history of its own. And it makes, if you go in, they, they make it, they try to make it super clear that, that the, it's not the original, Sylvia's original, but it's an homage to Sylvia's original. There's all kinds of information. They, they are books that, that they themselves have published about the relationship between the stores and the history of her, her original store and the history of this store. Um, right, famous writers um, you know, of today, like writers you've heard of, like Dave Eggers, <laughs> heartbreaking work of staggering genius, right? Um, they, I'm gonna use the word, blew through the store um, and 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 were the, what they call tumbleweeds. Um, so American writers can go, I, maybe even international writers. I'm not 100 sure of that, but definitely Ameri English speaking writers can go there. Um, and in exchange for working there, they can stay there. <laughs> um, it's a really cool. It's a really cool tradition. Um, really, really cool. 
And um, they have amazing literature there. I actually had the enormous privilege of going there this past May and signing copies of my book. Um, they actually care because they're um, in Paris and they're an international store. They actually carry both the British and the American editions, <laughs> which have different covers, which is really cool. Um, uh, wow. so you can buy either edition there. Um, sadly, they're all they're definitely out of the ones that I signed, but you can buy a copy there that has the Shakespeare and Company stamp on it, which is really neat. It is right, and they uh, ultimately he 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 names his daughter Sylvia Beach. Does he? Oh not? yes, I for, I'm, I'm sorry. That's an important part of the story too. So George has a daughter who he names Sylvia, and Sylvia Whitman um, runs the store today, and she is absolutely lovely. I mean, I think, yeah, that history is kind of clear. Uh, they have an, they even have an online uh, a website, you know, you can yes. check out for the bookstore, of yes. course, which which I did right away, yes. <laughs> you know, after finishing the book. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought, what, what, what must it have been like to stand there, you know, and kind of absorb that history? Uh, I would think you feel that, you know, in, when you're when you're there and in the place. Yeah, you absolutely do. I mean, you absolutely do. You feel it. Um, and, you know, by contrast, the, the, the Sylvia's location, Sylvia actually had the store in two different locations. She very, very briefly for two years from 1919 to 1921, the store was on um, a little street called the Rue du Pitren, which is around the corner from Adrienne's store on the Rue de l'Odeon. In 1921, Sylvia had the opportunity to move the store so that it was across the street from Adrienne's store on the Rue de l'Odeon, which is what she did. So from the, the most famous location from 1921 to 1941 was um, on the Rue de l'Odeon. And, um, you know, now if you go to that place, there's nothing there. Um, it's just a lovely Parisian facade. <laughs> um, there's a little plaque. Um, but, and it's sort of appropriate because of the way that the, the store had to shut down. She really had to erase the store to protect um, the books from the Nazis. Like she, she wound up having to move all the books, the contents of the store up to the fourth floor of the building. Um, and uh, there's a great story associated with that that I'm going to leave to readers. To, no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I highly recommend uh, again the, the book. It's a great, it's a great book. It's a great read. Um, why do you think she never opens again? Well, it's such a good question, and I I'm sure the the true the answer like all good answers is complicated and, and not just one thing. Um, she says in her memoir that she you know, why do the same thing twice? <laughs> uh, and I think that's a simple answer with a lot of layers to it, right? I think she was acutely aware of how special her original store was and the, and the literary moment that it inhabited and represented and took part in, right? And I think she sort of recognized that that moment was past, <laughs> it you know not not that there wouldn't be other great literary moments to come i mean you know the current shakespeare and company when it was limistral was home to the beat generation right so but you know at that point sylvia is much older she was already 30 when she opened shakespeare and company which you know we don't think of 30 as old today but you know in 1919 it was, she was not like very young um uh 
uh, and so she was already 50 by the time, you know, she had to close it down and she was in her fifties and she had some health trouble. Um, I think she just was like ready to let it be, um, a great accomplishment in her past and move on to other adventures. You know, it was after, you know, she had been approached to write her memoirs in the 1930s when she was still running the store, but she said no. Um, but once the store had been closed for some time and she had some perspective, she, um, I think she was able to sit down and write her memoir. So she was able to do some other, um, other work in the literary world of Paris and, um, America in Paris, um, once the store was closed. And was there any indication of whether or not she kept in touch with Joyce, um, after like the, the Ulysses was over after the, the store closed? Well, you know, Joyce dies in, I'd have to re, I'd have to look this up, but it's 1941 or four, 40 or 41. So, you know, there's, there's no, there is no Joyce to keep in touch with after, really after the war. Right. Um, I, I'm not sure if she I didn't kept realize that. Yeah. I'm not sure if she kept in touch with his wife, Nora, or her, their children. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, she really, it was really, that was it. Um, yeah, I didn't realize he had died at, the, at that point. <laughs> yeah, well, Joyce was about ten years older than she was, and um, a little bit less. Um, and he had terrible health problems. Just you know, there's uh, you know, and I talk a bit about this in the novel, right? You know, he had eye problems and teeth problems. His health was just not very good, um, and he lived in cold, damp places in Europe. So, um, but you still think of him. I mean, he, he's such a compelling character in the novel. Uh, you tend to think of him, well, you do touch upon his health problems. He just seems uh, somewhat indestructible. <laughs> well, I mean, certainly when he's like revising the novel off the press. Yeah. I mean, he really like, he's really, I mean, yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a big, he has a big personality, right? He, right. Um, he's, a, he's a, he's a, an important writer with a big personality and, um, but he was definitely not indestructible. <laughs> um, well, yeah, we say that, but uh, no one really is, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, we just get that sense. I mean, their personalities, uh, I think, like I said, all the uh, American authors you touched upon are definitely, uh, they, they shine through the book. And it feels a lot like just spending some time with these great characters in history. Right, your your novel. I mean, I, I just think it's a it's beautifully done. Uh, I was totally obsessed with it when I read it, uh, you know, because it is so beautifully done. Because you did capture this world, and it was a world I was unfamiliar with. I mean, obviously, I've read a lot of stuff to do with the the twenties, uh, but this this Sylvia Beach's world that she creates in this bookstore uh, that you know, as you said, it's home to all these, these other um, great American uh, novelists. Um, and her, her interest in books and writing and writers, her fascination and her awe when she gets to meet them or pick their brains. I mean, it all comes through. Uh, and I think especially for somebody who loves the library for loves reading. I mean, it, it's interesting. And, and just if you're if you're interested in, in, a, in a strong woman uh, who's on an adventure, I mean, all of that is in the book. Well, thank you. I mean, I feel like it was an enormous privilege for me to get to write this book. Um, like, you know, when I had the idea, first of all, I couldn't believe no one else had done it. 
<laughs> I, I felt lucky that I, I no one else had done it. Um, but then just, I just feel privileged that I did. I got to spend, you know, some number of years of my life just completely immersed in this world, um, getting to just imagine it. When I write, I call it getting in the time machine. <laughs> so every <laughs> day I to get in my time machine and go to 1920s and later 1930s Paris. And it was just a lovely way to pass the time, particularly during the pandemic which is what I was writing. I mean, the, the I mean, I know we're not out of the pandemic yet, but um, during the, the real lockdowns was when I was really writing this book. Um, so it was oh, I love that. It was such a treat. You know, one final thing I'll say is that, you know, in an interesting way, um, there was a kind of contemporary inspiration, um, you know, at play as I was writing, as I was writing this novel, you know, when we were all in lockdown, contemporary independent booksellers really stepped up to make sure that their clientele um, could order online. They moved all of their events um, to Zoom. You know, they really, really took seriously their, their mission to connect readers with books and writers. And they, it was, it was just such an inspiration to me to see so many booksellers all across the United States and the world doing this thing. Um, you know, I think that if Sylvia was running her store today, she would have been one of the first to get on Zoom. I really do. She, she really, um, I agree. afraid of change. Um, and she, she believed in the future. Right. I mean, that's really what I think her, her optimism and wanting to publish Ulysses was about was, you know, she believed that that was the future of literature. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, Zoom is with us to stay. I really in, personally enjoy getting to participate in the book launches of friends across the country that I wouldn't be able to any other way. Um, but I'm also glad to be getting back to in-person events. Sure. I mean, your, and your book's about to come out, or maybe it has already for uh, a paperback's out tomorrow. Paperback, right? Yep. Yeah, tomorrow. Okay. So, yeah. yeah so, in, in literally, your paperback is about to launch right in time for Christmas. Yes. Uh, and that's an exciting thing. Uh, yes. it's, I'd say to everyone, it makes a, uh, you know, a great Christmas gift uh, for, the, for the lover of historical fiction in your world. Yes. Um, and I will, on that note, I do always like to plug the fact that my local independent bookstore is Wellesley Books, and you can call them, and from anywhere in the United States, you can call them and ask me to personalize and sign a copy, and they will send it to you. So if you do want, like, you know, dear mother-in-law, you know, signed it, signed by the, the author, you can call Wellesley Books, and I'm happy to, I'm always happy to go down there and sign books. Oh, great. Well, and I'll put a link up. Um, you know, along with the, the, the video and the audio uh, where you can easily access Wesley books. Um, okay. So that's because that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, um, I have a quick off topic question um, about Christmas. Oh, yes. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Christmas tradition or Christmas story that you could share with us? Oh gosh, I was prepared to talk about the book, but less so about Christmas. Well, you know, I have my, I'm sitting next to my Christmas tree right now. Um, it sort of has become my daughter's and my tradition to like put the tree up on Thanksgiving weekend. I must say that a few years ago, I caved and finally bought a, um, a, 
a, a fake tree, but it's beautiful. And it's just so nice to be able to just get it out and have it be easily put up. <laughs> um, and um, since my parents are here uh, in Massachusetts for this Christmas, another tradition we like to do when, when we're together, we're not always able to be together because my parents typically live in California and I live in, in Massachusetts, so we're not always able to make it work to be together. But we do um, uh, the Feast of the Seven Fishes on Christmas Eve. Um, we do it in a completely secular way, and we sp spread the um, the fish out from breakfast all the way through dinner time. So it starts with something um, bagels and locks, usually, <laughs> for breakfast, <laughs> um, and usually, you know, maybe a lobster roll for lunch. Um, and you know, it just—it's fun. It's fun to do that. We're we're a big food family, so it's really fun to get to play with our food at the holidays. That's very very cool. <laughs> well, it's been an honor to get this opportunity uh, to talk to you. As I said, I—I I mean, I, my first experience with reading your work was the Paris Bookseller, and I really just fell in love with it. Uh, and and I did. I ran I ran out and got the other two novels after that. I was a big Grace F Kelly fan as well, so. Uh, probably less Rose Kennedy, uh, but but big Grace Kelly fan, uh, and I, I, they're all great. I mean, they, I I thought they all captured uh, the the era well, the the women well. I love that you're you know you're heading down the path of capturing strong women in history, which I think is underutilized uh, in writing. I think that it's been the habit of most writers to focus on men in history who have been either successful or uh, innovative in some way. And it's it's odd, it, maybe now it's changing a little bit, but it's odd that the women get their due. Uh, and so I love that you've taken up that baton uh, and you're capturing these strong women. So allow me to, to give you a, a cheer for like that. I feel like I'm part of a really amazing movement in historical fiction of women writers doing this, you know, capturing other phenomenal women of history, you know, Marie Benedict and, you know, um, Kate Quinn, as you mentioned, and Stephanie Thornton and Dolan Perkins Valdez. And, you know, there's lots of, lots of, um, it's coming. It, the change is coming. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy for it. Uh, and it's, it's thrilling. It's a great novel. I highly recommend it. Uh, if you haven't read it, you know, you, this is definitely something you should be reading. Get it for the, a gift for the holidays, for the reader in your life. Uh, no one will be disappointed. This is a great, compelling story about a fascinating woman and an era in, uh, in, in the world that uh, I, I just, I, I can't see anybody not falling in love with it as well. So great job. And thank you so much for coming here and spending some time talking to me about it. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a great time. And I hope when your next book comes out, you'll come back and talk to me about oh. it. I'm sure that can be arranged. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And on that note, I'm going to close the podcast and say uh, thank you for watching uh, and goodbye from uh, It May Interest You to Know.